This is an ABC podcast. Country clubs weigh in on the debate about resources companies sponsoring sports teams. By losing that major sporting um, yeah, funding from the, the big corporations, yeah, we, the, the giants would fold. Rio de Janeiro has its giant statue, Christ the Redeemer. And now the Red Centre has its own hilltop monument to Christianity. We have been struggling for many years to get a job opportunities for the young people. So that cross going to bring lots of creative jobs. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. But first, to tonight's budget, the second federal budget this year. Here's what Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government Catherine King had to say earlier today. Tonight you will see a budget that delivers for our regions. It will deliver responsible reform for regional programs and delivers on our commitments that we made to regional Australia right the way across this country. The, budget the manager will of opposition business will cease to deject initiatives for regional Australia. In my own portfolio, it will include the Bass, Tasman and Tamar highways in Tasmania, freight roads in Western Australia, South Australia and the Northern Territory, Mandalong Road and the Musselbrook Bypass in the Hunter, jetties up in the Torres Strait, logistics and industrial hubs in Gippsland, in Townsville, I see the member interjecting, and in the Northern Territory cultural and sporting precincts in Alice and in Kalgoorlie. Minister for Regional Development Catherine King earlier today. Last time round, one of the big ticket items for the bush was the $1 billion Building Better Regions Fund. To apply for a grant, you to fill in a 40-page document to explain why your infrastructure project should be funded. Ken Clements is the chair of the Mount Barker Historical Society and he, like 815 other organisations around the country, put in a grant application. Hopefully they will keep the Building Better Regions Fund, although they will probably call it a different name, as every government calls it a different name. Um, but hopefully they'll still be doing the same thing, and hopefully those that have, um, those that have applied for the money will be able to um, get the money that they've applied for rather than going back through the whole thing and doing it again, because it, it, is, it takes time, and, and what people don't realise is organisations like this are run by volunteers. Ken Clemens, the chair of the Mount Barker Historical Society. Tonight's budget has scrapped the Building Better Regions Fund. The new Labour government has replaced it with two new schemes worth a billion dollars called the Growing Regions Programme and the Partnerships and Precincts Programme. Fiona Best is the chief executive of the Birdship Cropping Group, an agricultural group based in northern Victoria, and it was anticipating federal funding for its $5.1 million short accommodation stay for researchers. Fiona Best, first up, tell me more about the project that you want to build. So it's a, it's a bold and exciting short-term accommodation project uh, that will be situated here in Birchip in northwest Victoria with the primary 
goal of uh, providing somewhere for researchers, agricultural researchers, agricultural students and industry to come and have the opportunity to work within the region. And currently, as many people across Australia will know, accommodation options in small rural communities is very limited and and it's no different here in, in the region in northwest Victoria. So this project is is looking to solve that problem uh, and at the same time allow you know innovative research and agricultural uh, work to be going on in the region. Fiona, were you disappointed to hear that the Building Better Regions Fund had been scrapped? Oh, look, I guess so. Yes, um, when we received notification that the that round six of the BBR wasn't um, being progressed. I guess there was a little disappointment um, in that we had, you know, we'd invested time in the application process and, and we're putting our best foot forward. Uh, I guess the the encouraging thing is, is that there is uh, a new avenue to pursue now through the Growing Regions program, which we'll be, we'll be looking to do. Uh, and yeah, again, we, we sort of feel that our project is, is one of, of merit and and we're we're heavily invested in making it happen and and we're happy to uh, to put ourselves forward through that new growing regions program. How many hours had you actually put into the grant application? Uh, look, many uh, and and no different to many grant applications. You know, it's a it's a it's a big process, particularly when you're looking to to attract big dollars. Uh, and so there's time invested in in making sure that the you've expressed the intent of the project very clearly, that you've got industry support um, represented through uh, letters of support for the project. And yeah, look, I guess it's it is a time consuming. Uh, process but I guess when you're asking for big dollars there's also a lot of accountability that needs to go along with that as well. In Wyndham in northern Western Australia the local shire applied for federal funding to extend its airport runway and the shire chief executive Vernon Lawrence was speaking to the ABC about the application process that you too Fiona Best has gone through. Let's let's have a listen to what he had to say because he's he's concerned that it could get more costly capital costs on, on, on our major construction programs um, have have really blown blown the lid off uh, a lot of our budgets. Um, the detail around putting our budget application or our funding application in, you know, certain aspects, certainly around the bitumen parts of asphalt and those oil-based products inputs into into the project, and those costs have gone up two and three times. Um, yeah, it, it does have a major effect. 40% is, uh, you know, increasing project costs is, is not unusual at this point in time. Fiona Best, do you share those concerns about the blowout of costs that have happened even since March? Yes, uh, I mean, that is something that is definitely on our mind since we did our initial budget costings and estimates. There's, there's probably no doubt that the 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 cost of the build um, may have increased. Uh, I mean, like every project, you build in a, a factor in some contingency, but at the same time, it is yeah, it's without a doubt on our mind that that cost of uh, materials and labour will have increased since since we we submitted the initial application, uh, and yeah, and hopefully those increasing costs um, will be yeah will have to be part of our um well hopefully they're part of the the new government's considerations with the with the new growing regions program and as you said i mean a consideration will be the weather that you've gone through there in northern victoria as well 
Oh, look, yes, a complicating factor for everyone at the moment. It's extremely wet um, and where many communities are dealing with flooding and uh, and so, you know, projects like this perhaps slip down the priority list right at the right at this particular point in time. But what it does highlight is that we, we need to be we need to have strong rural communities um, that you know have the capability and capacity to withstand really, really tough conditions, whether it be drought or floods and um, and and I guess many of these projects that put themselves forward through the through these programs directly work towards addressing that and, and building building our communities to be strong and resilient when we're faced with um, tough and challenging times. Fiona Best, the Chief Executive of the Birdship Cropping Group. Thanks a million for talking to Australia Wide. No problems. Great. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. A debate over resources sponsorship in professional sport has been playing out at the elite level, with CEOs and athletes across the country weighing in. But in country towns, corporate sponsorship is a lifeline for sporting clubs. Andrew Chounding reports from the gold mining town of Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. You know, we're very lucky to have Northern Star as a major sponsor. and They've been a great sponsor for five, six years now, and if not longer, um, you, pretty much we wouldn't be able to operate with the, the, the support that they give us. Russell Duncan is the chairman of the Goldfields Giants, a semi-professional basketball team based in the outback mining town of Kalgoorlie, Boulder. The town is famous for mining, first for gold and now rare earth minerals that are used in everything from smartphones to electric cars. The town also boasts dozens of sporting clubs from soccer to hockey, as well as the high-profile Goldfields Football League. Mr. Duncan says for a town built on mining, sponsorship from the resource sector was vital for teams to survive. Even though the smaller companies do give a lot and they support us a lot, it's nothing to the, to the point of what the big corporations do. So by losing that major sporting um, yeah, funding from the, the big corporations, yeah, we, the, the giants would fold. You, we would have to, we wouldn't be able to operate. He says sponsorship is not just about branding, but a way for companies to support the community. Yeah, when people say, oh, they have to do it, well, they don't really have to. I mean, image-wise, it it looks good, but you can see these days there's not many companies, that, even the smaller businesses, that they put back into their community because they know um, know, they're grateful for the support that they get and that that their workers do things outside of work. So if they can do a little bit to make it, um, a pleasant environment for people to stay, especially in the Goldfields region. Um, yeah, it makes it nicer for everybody to be here. Dr Ashley Morgan is a lecturer in sports business and marketing at Edith Cowan University and says the benefit to the mining sector was clear. It's really not surprising then that this is appealing to companies that are involved in a whole range of, of different industries that are likely to threaten societal welfare. So here we're talking about uh, you know, fossil fuels and, and energy companies, but also you know, this goes across to unhealthy food and alcohol sponsorship and sports betting sponsorship. And what we're seeing is these companies are, are using this uh, sponsorship platform to be able to portray a more positive image to the public. Dr Morgan says, like the banning of tobacco, teams need to consider what sponsorship says about the team and its values. Tobacco was obviously 
very clearly harmful for health. But we've also got to look at what's happening within society. So increasingly, we all have higher expectations of brands and organisations doing the right thing. So it's difficult to directly compare what happened in um, you know the 1990s to now. But I think increasingly, we as a, as a society are saying, no, we want companies to actually invest in positive things towards our health. But Russell Duncan says there are potentially long-term impacts that need to be considered if clubs are to survive. Where do you stop? Like, do you, you know, once you know, they start getting rid of all these guys from supporting community, then, you know, then they start targeting the next company down the line. And you know, sometimes you'll get to the point where companies will just go, well, we won't support anything. Russell Duncan finishing off Andrew Chanding's report there from Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. Lend us your ears and experience a world of audio content with ABC Listen. A world of sound. Like Expanse Pink Diamond Heist. How millions of dollars of diamonds were stolen in the middle of the bush and somehow smuggled to Europe. And dive deep beneath the surface of three crooked cops known as the Rat Pack in Dig. Sirens are coming. Dorothy handed Hallahan the money and when he walked off, the undercovers swooped. The ABC Listen app. Lend me your ears. Download it now from your app store. And while you're there, you can find Australia Wide. The South Australian Government has introduced a compulsory scheme to remote communities in the remote APY lands, which charges residents for electricity using a prepaid credit card and smart meter system. It's the first time the community have had to pay for their power, as Bethany Alderson reports. Until July this year, First Nations residents in South Australia's APY lands had never paid for their electricity before. Previously, power costs were covered under the state government's Remote Area Energy Supply Scheme, but amendments were made to the policy to mandate charging residents for electricity in an effort to reduce the number of outages and hotspots in remote communities. But with the rising cost of food and fuel on the APY lands, Deputy Chair of the Pukaja Community Council, Gary Lewis, says for many, it's been a tough transition. People don't have a, a money to um, pay electricity and go to the shop and spend all the monies, you know. You know, like if you're paying uh, things like your songs, it's $35, you know. And in other part of, uh, like in Kmart and all that, you can buy it for maybe $7 or $5. Mr Lewis says a lot of people are struggling to find permanent work and welfare payments are not covering basic living necessities. It's been a lot of uh, concern and a lot of interest for families. Mr Lewis says he also feels the state government has not negotiated with community councils about its mandatory power scheme. They didn't really come through the council and that they appointed a money mob talk about through Alice Springs organisation. They pick up those people to be in the middle talking to the people that are not really representing the community. And it's not been set up the right way about how to trying people in our media and giving information to run the power in our own community so that we can help other people. In a statement, the Department of Energy and Mining said Money Mob Talkabout were contracted to provide education and support services for the rollout of the program and were not required to negotiate with communities. It also insisted the department had met with councils, executives and locals to ensure people understood the program. 
The department's director of energy programs and services, Stephen Bai, says there are safety nets in place to assist households, including emergency credit and the option for customers to elect to pay via Centrepay direct from their Centrelink account. There are a number of disconnections that we can see, but that has reduced significantly over time. People have got used to it and Centrepay being applied to the meter as well has been a big win, I suppose, in, in reducing those disconnections. While retailer Cowell Electric will be monitoring disconnection rates across the region. He said a clear picture of how successful the system is will not be revealed until the program is reviewed in 12 months time. Money Mob Talkabout's project manager Nick Ricard said while it's been a big change for everyone on the APY lands, his team is providing as much assistance as they can to ease the transition. Communities started paying one by one so we could spend a full week in the community to have a presence there to support residents as they got used to the process of paying for power. The chief of the state's Council of Social Service, Ross Womersley, says he's already heard of households going without power and reports of school attendance dropping off since prepayment was introduced. While there's no data yet to support that evidence, Mr Lewis says in the meantime, he just wants the voices of his community heard. Well, I think the government should be really listening to the community and negotiating up properly, sitting around and sometimes listen to Anang or what they're concerned. We can basically figure it but do it the right way and make sure that Anang will control the power, not the government's coming in and throwing the thing in and letting people to work it out themselves. It's, it's our community. Bethany Alderson with that story from the remote APY lands in South Australia. Rio de Janeiro has the giant statue Christ the Redeemer and now the Red Centre has its own hilltop monument to Christianity. After more than a decade, the Aboriginal community at Haspelof in the Northern Territory has realised its vision to build a giant cross atop nearby Memory Mountain. The metal cross measures 20 metres tall and will be lit at night. Locals hope it will serve as a spiritual meeting place and create job opportunities for the region for decades to come. Fundraising for the project has been spearheaded by famous landscape photographer Ken Duncan, who secured millions of dollars for the project through private donations. The project has also been supported by Mr Duncan's friend and Hollywood star Mel Gibson. Alice Springs reporter Lee Robinson has the story. If you drive west of Alice Springs for about two and a half hours, you'll find yourself in the vast West McDonnell Ranges, famous for its hiking trails and scenic gorges. But nestled in the ranges is a new attraction. The cross is hard to miss from the gravel road, and its rusted steel frame shimmers in the sunlight. It's been a long time coming for the community of Haas Bluff, also known as Akunji, where locals have been working to make their vision a reality since 2009. When I first saw it, we had tears in our eyes. We cried because of it's in our land, in our country. Douglas Malta is an elder in Haas Bluff, a community of about 150 people, originally established as a Lutheran mission in the 1940s. It's important because of we have been struggling for many years to get a job opportunities for the young people. So that cross going to bring lots of creative jobs. It makes me proud and my people to have something special like this in our country. Ken Duncan, one of Australia's most acclaimed photographers, first got wind of the community's vision while out on a visit to Haas Bluff. At first, he didn't want to get involved with the project. They said, can you help us? We, we need to put that cross up there. And they said, 
we want it as a meeting place where everyone can come and pray. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good vision. And so I thought, if you need my help, sure, I'll help you. And I must admit, I was thinking a couple of 4B2s and a couple of bags of cement. Through his Christian charity, Walk A While, Mr Duncan has raised several million dollars from hundreds of donors around the world. The project has faced a number of challenges and delays along the way. The budget blew out several times, there were issues surrounding council approval, and then there was the COVID-19 pandemic. And the plan attracted further attention when actor-director Mel Gibson, a longtime friend of Mr Duncan, toured the site in 2016. And signed memorabilia from his movie The Passion of the Christ was offered as a reward for anyone who made a six-figure donation. To raise the funds, um, we just shared the vision. And it was something we couldn't really go and get funding from the government because of the being across. Uh, that's a hard thing for them to sort of fund. A lot of the donors, they don't even want their name known. And I, I just think that is just so cool when someone sees something and wants to help to the point where they don't want any name or anything like that. They just want to do it. And I think one thing that I try and do is just never give in, just keep going. And, you know, it doesn't mean it comes easy, but we just keep going. What kind of things do you want this to bring for Hearts Bluff and what kind of a future do you think this place has? One of the things I've got to be careful of is it's not about my vision. It's got to be very much, well, what is it you want to do? And this is where I think we need to find out is what is it you want to do and that's going to create a sustainable income? Because in the end, if there's not going to be sustainable incomes created, what are we doing? These people, they want to be able to have their own finances, to be able to buy their own cars, to be able to have their own houses, own their own houses. And, and also they want jobs for their kids, but they want jobs in community. And also they're so proud to show their country. And I think that's what we're trying to create. The final element of the monument is expected to be completed by the end of the year when solar-powered LED lights will be installed to illuminate the cross. And down the track, there are plans to build the site into a small-scale tourist destination complete with toilets and camping facilities. For Douglas Malta, the future of the community looks bright, but he won't forget all the people who helped make it happen. For those people who have passed, we have a feeling for them and, and for the area as well and for their families. When it's completed, they left their names on the plaques to remember them for the, what they stand for. The cross is for everyone, to bring everyone into unity, PS1. Lee Robinson with that story from Hatsbluff, just over 200 k's west of Alice Springs. It's pretty remote. It's been in a COVID hiatus for the past two years, but on Friday, the Gold Coast 500 roars back to life. The streets of Surfers Paradise have been turned into a street circuit on which the country's best V8 supercar drivers will compete in two 250k races over the weekend. Our reporter on the Gold Coast, Tom Forbes, caught up with a few of the drivers, including Anton de Pasquale. Looking forward to the Gold Coast. Um, it's been a few years since we've been here. It's such a crazy track um, and such a cool event. So um, it's it's cool to see it back. And uh, by the sounds of things, it's going to be bigger than ever. Anytime we're in a big city, racing around streets and you know, up against fences, um, the event's just out of control. So uh, it, and this is definitely one of the better ones for the year. I think we've missed it for a few 
and for a few years so it, it's cool and brings a bit of a big vibrant event to the um, to the calendar again and and it's one of the hardest tracks as well you know so there's not much uh, room for error around the streets of Gold Coast. and what's it like being out there when you've got you know high-rise buildings either side you've got grandstands you've got people very close to the track do you feel an added responsibility to drive within your limits given what could be around you and what could go wrong plenty can go wrong anytime you're racing up against the fence but it is one of those tracks where the closer you are to the fence and the harder you go on um, the faster you go and if you're not doing it someone else will be so you have to be pushing quite hard because everyone is but the uh the margin for error is so small every lap and it's going to be like that for the 500 k's um so you just have to deal with it and uh and hang on to it speaking with andre heimgartner v8 driver andre you're a local, Kiwi-born, but living here on the Gold Coast. What's it like racing here on the Goldie? Yeah, it's really good. It's an amazing environment. It looks like we'll get some warm weather too, so always nice and warm, and everyone, all the punters and all the fans seem to love it. So, yeah, it's always a good atmosphere. It's a bit of a party atmosphere, and the track's pretty wild itself too. It um, just adds to the fun of it, you know, coming in with scrapes down the side of the wall, the car and stuff, so it's all part of um, racing on streets all so good. Wow. Local Gold Coast supercar driver Andre Heimgartner, Heimgartner rather, ending that story from Tom Forbes. You can't say you don't get it all here in Australia-wide. We definitely go all around the country. And that's Australia-wide for this Tuesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.